0: Welcome to the Force Matters Podcast, powered by Motusi. I'm JD Romick.
1: And I'm Jonathan Ang. We're here to have disruptive, inclusive, and informative dialogue at the intersection of technology, research, and clinical practice.
0: Our promise to sort through the BS so you don't have to. Our focus is what matters to your musculoskeletal health. Alright, now on to the show with Chris Hoekstra. Chris Hoekstra is one of my favorite people to listen to. He's a physical therapist, but he's also, um, not only is he trained in manual therapy, but he's also trained in artificial intelligence. He has his PhD, but he is the chief technical officer of Therapeutic Associates, the really big physical therapy business, as well as an adjunct professor at Oregon Health Sciences University in um, clinical epidemiology, as well as bioinformatics two things that i think are super fascinating so really excited to get some of chris's input today on where he sees the field of physical therapy going ways that we need to innovate and he's just so fun to talk to i'm really excited for this episode i also want to give a little disclaimer this episode might sound a little bit different chris called into this um into this interview so on to the show all right chris welcome to the show um, I'm just super curious about you, Chris, you're a physical therapist, but you have such a varied background. Give us a brief history of your career and, you know, some of this background.
2: Uh, yeah. So I'm a, a very circuitous path to where I am now. So I'm a uh, PT. I graduated 2001 from Pacific university and, uh, then went really heavy down the biomechanics, um, manual therapy tracks. So did my residency down in Kaiser Hayward right after graduation. And then moved up to portland and did my fellowship through north american institute of orthopedic manual therapy so i did that in 2006 and then uh, i've been on faculty with them ever since so teach their kind of mid-level courses in manual therapy uh i work therapeutic associates and i've worked for them since 2002 i've been a pt for them a clinic director a shareholder so i was an owner in the company for about eight years and then decided at that point I wanted to change and move to more an executive role. So I, it's been great. I kind of write my own job descriptions. I've been director of research. I've been director of quality. Uh, my current role, or director of knowledge management, I guess, my current role is chief clinical transformation officer. Um, so with that, I oversee information technology and clinical practice. So how do we kind of use technology to push forward patient care? And how I got into that world was about eight years ago. Uh, I was really into clinical quality. I'd done a little research on outcomes and psychometrics and measurement tools um, and really got into the clinical reasoning of outcomes and how do we push outcomes better in practice. And so fell in love with what's called clinical informatics, which is basically how you take data and push it into wise action. And so went to OHSU, completed my master's and realized in that I really liked that and wanted to become more of a qualitative researcher and so completed my PhD and a postdoc fellowship through the National Library of Medicine in in biomedical informatics. And so my, my real focus coming out of there was on user adoption of technology, and then specifically, how do we use technology to push quality? So that's kind of the weird, crazy route that I've taken to where I am now.
0: That doesn't seem very characteristic of like a PT, you know, like the normal route of what a PT would do, you know, becoming a, a staff PT at a clinic, then maybe you go on to be a clinic director, and then you, Maybe you teach one day as a faculty at a university. It sounds like you've been da- led down a lot of different routes. I mean, that sounds awesome.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it all was out of necessity. So basically, I was like typical PT. I graduated and said, I want to be a great manual therapist. Back in the early 2000s, that was a big thing. I knew I wanted to teach, and so I, I had the fortune of teaching at Pacific. I was only a year out and got to teach orthopedics, and that really wow. um, got me interested in that process. Uh, got me into NIOPT and I continued to teach in, in different ways. Um, but I really, I was into clinical outcomes. I knew we had to prove what we were doing and, and prove that we can do it better. And then became disenfranchised with how everybody was doing it. Therapeutic associates included. And so that's where the next eight years kind of led me was how do we do quality better? And then it, that led me to, to the IT side to say, well, IT can do it, but no one's using it well, and they do it well in medicine. But no one did it in PT, so it kind of had to chart a, a new course, had some mentors uh, at the PT side that helped me, but no one did exactly what I did. So it, it was kind of trying to fill needs.
0: So that leads me to another question. That is, you know, this motion science team, how'd you get integrated with, with this whole crew? I'm sitting here with John and he's created this awesome team of such unique talents. How'd you get integrated with this team?
2: Yeah, so serendipitous. So I, I knew John from his past work with Therapeutic Associates. We were kind of loosely aligned. We didn't know each other tightly. Uh, I had a colleague up at OHSU as I was finishing my PhD, uh, and she was working in the learning health systems side of OHSU. And she was approached by Matusi as a potential, hey, could OHSU align to help kind of prove, prove a concept, and prove the value of the Matusi model? And so she came to me. And she's like, hey, I know you're a PT and you're into Biomechanics. I have this group. Can we, can I have you included in a in a talk? And so I got. We went to the talk. I'm like, wait a minute, I know you. <laughs> and, so, and so that kind of fell through. Uh, but then we started talking, and, and my background in informatics uh, and is more on the data analytics side. Like, how do you how do you organize data so that it can be used to answer meaningful questions? And so I talked with Mark and John about um, kind of setting up some models so that AI could ultimately be done and make sure that. Uh, the AI could be useful for clinicians and you don't also waste your energy early on collecting a lot of data you don't need or organizing in a way that will block you from using it down the road. So that's where we started talking and then the motion science team was developed and got folded into that. Does
0: that sound
1: about right, John? Dr. Yeah. Your meat cute. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to push you a little bit more, I guess, and try and dig in to, to ask you, why have you stuck around for two years? Right? Like we've, you, there's kind of, <laughs> I'm amazed and humbled that I've been able to keep, you know, these, this sort of brain trust together. Um, and, and I'm curious, uh, you know, as to why you keep spending an hour a week with, with us.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, in my world of health IT, I spend a lot of time with, uh, vendors so that can promise they can do certain things and, want to show you these fancy bells and whistles, and and their main goal is try to dangle a shiny object in front of you so you'll buy it, right? So this is why I spend a lot of my day fending these people off or trying to find where I want to invest for our company to find the most value in technology. So with Matusi, well, what I've learned from those is there are some snake oil salesmen, and there are also uh, some really good people that you want to learn, which is because they're good people, and they're, they're really doing good work, and um, that's what we found working with the motion science team when you have people that are heartfelt they're doing this out of a, just an internal passion if nothing else and then also an altruistic gene of saying look this can push the profession forward so there's not a, a lot of hey how can we sell this thing and make it the best so that everyone's going to buy it but it's how to make this thing the best so it'll push practice forward and help people to have an easier time getting patients better faster um, so I believe in it uh, It's you have great minds working together and so. The academic in me always wants to just be challenged with with hard problems and get together with the brain test people to collaborate and think of new ways as looking at problems. And that's what we get to do is just kind of play. So it's definitely been a fun
0: endeavor. Cool. I have some questions off of that too, because you know we chatted with Matt for a while on the outlook of PT. What do you think the profession is going to look like in the next 10 years? You know, for some context, as a newer professional in a PT, kind of seeing what the profession is. We we call them like mill PT clinics full of kind of unrealistic expectations to see 18 to 20 patients per day, billing for units, and really just trying to to get as much in as you can. Uh, you know, there's a whole sector of PTs that want to innovate. So what do you see as a common practice pattern and, and maybe solution for them in these next 10 years? I know that's a, a big question right off the bat.
2: Yeah. So I think first when we use the profit word, and I would say uh, where, where I run into is it's all businesses are pro-revenue, even a nonprofit. Take an academic medical center that was nonprofit. There's still revenue. So ultimately you have a budget. I work for OHSU outside of uh therapeutic associates and I see all of their budget woes and I see what they have to do in their nonprofit. They have the exact same constraints we have as a for-profit organization. So, um, but I'm with you to get a therapist, to get excited about coming out of practice and seeing 20 patients a day, um, doesn't sound great, but then you ask yourself, all right, well, 20 patients a day, how many slots is that? And how much time do the patients get? That's pretty full, right? Um, but so what's the right number? That's why we work with a lot of our new grads. Is, okay, well, what's a good number for you to see each day? And then we ask ourselves, why is that number feel good, but another number feel wrong? And some of it's because you only have so many hours in the day. But in my world, a lot of it is because your systems are messed up. You have systems that don't serve the patient. You have systems that don't serve the provider. And so you're kind of at the mercy of your electronic systems or your people systems or your hierarchical systems with payers that they're just misaligned and they're messed up. So... Yes, we could ask a provider to see less, but then they're going to produce res- less revenue. And our healthcare system is in a downward spiral. Margins are shrinking. And if you get less revenue, eventually they're going to go out of business. It's, it's going to happen. And so the answer is probably do a little bit less. You don't need to see 80 a day, but optimize your systems so you're not working against them. And that's where I spend most of my day is trying to help our therapists with that.
0: That's
2: great. And that's, that's sorry to cut you off. That's where I think Matusi potentially could help because ultimately, Anything you can do to be a time saver so a therapist doesn't have to have their nose in a computer or uh, spend a lot of superfluous time doing tests uh, that give them very limited information, uh, we gotta get them to the, to the signal through the noise as fast as possible.
1: Chris, I'm gonna piggyback off of that one and, and, and we're gonna ask all of our guests uh, a consistent two questions. Uh, and what, the first question is, is, where do you see our profession in the next 10 to 20 years? You know, you can kind of take that wherever you want, but.
2: Yeah, I think what, what we just hit on is actually what's going to have to be dealt with. So you get uh, a new generation of PT who isn't probably bent like me, where you're just going to put your head down and just do and figure, well, if I work harder, I'll get rewarded somewhere down the road and it'll probably get better if I just keep working harder. You have, probably have a smarter group than I was to be more balanced in your approach so you've got this group coming in. But then, like I said, we have what's called the death spiral on the, on the third-party payer system where mark, the payment is continuing to decrease. It's never going to increase. Year over year, payers as a whole are not going to pay you more. They're going to continue to pay less. And so the only way a health system, for profit or nonprofit, it frankly doesn't matter, is going to keep surviving, is to get more efficient in what they produce. So that means either squeezing your people harder to give you more units which is what you get paid on or get better systems so that they so it costs you less to produce those units and so i think it's going to be a combination of those but if you look at the east coast i think the east coast is probably an example of where we're headed right so maybe not at the extreme where they have to see 80 patients 90 patients a week to be able to stay viable they have 15 minute visits with their patients and have to get them in and out and they have to do it probably making about 40, dollars $40 per visit, right? We're more than triple that oftentimes on the West Coast, but you're going to come down to match what they are. They're not going to come up to meet where we are. So how are we going to do it more efficiently to keep going? We also have a more um, savvy patient base who doesn't see uh, healthcare as just a commodity where I'm just going to go and do what you tell me to do, but they have more choices. And so While you have to be more efficient, you also have to be giving higher value in what you do, or else you're going to lose your patient base. So it's a quandary we have to find out. I think it's an interesting problem and can be an exciting problem. But for the newer professional, it's like, you want me to do what? And if they're put in a system that's inefficient and doesn't have systems working for them, it's not going to work. And what we see is you're going to last one or two years, and then you're going to jump somewhere else thinking the grass is greener, but it's the same problem no matter where you go.
1: Are there any learnings that we can take from the East Coast, you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's keeping it in perspective. So a lot of people say, well, those East Coast therapists get horrible outcomes. That's not true. Like East Coast therapists get amazing outcomes, and there's some amazing therapists. They've just put systems in place that help them. Using a care extender team, I think out here on the West Coast, we kind of have a uh, we're first mentality where if you use an extender, it's horrible care. And so it has to be me, the PT, doing everything because that's the model that we live in. But the East Coast has found ways to use extenders and give exceptional care, very ethical care, but they're limited by the constraints that they're in. So I think how do we use the team and take a doctor of physical therapy and actually have them behave like a doctor of physical therapy? They have to oversee a team of people just like a doctor of podiatry does or a doctor of medicine does. You wouldn't hope the doctor of medicine to do all of their blood draws and do all of their inoculations. They have a team that helps them with that. It's just how do we give awesome care and train our team well to do that?
1: Huh. Any predictions?
2: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, well, the prediction everyone says is our health system is going to blow up, and it will. I mean, if if we don't figure out um, how to give good care at a reasonable price and get payers to pay a reasonable amount for that, it, something's going to break, and you already kind of see it in some of the payers just going off off the rails on how they pay or some providers going off the rails on how they provide care. And so you get a lot of people trying to create their own answer to the problem. You're going to have to find an answer that works for a larger sloth or else you're going to get a lot of haves and have nots. And it's going to create a lot of competition that um, is not healthy. I I like competition, but it's going to create this other type of competition that's going to drive the professions of healthcare all of them, probably in the wrong direction. Yeah.
0: So for PTs looking at the future, because... This is what excites me about this team. You know, Tyler connected me through George Fox. I'm lucky enough to use a biomechanics lab with patients, but I've found that the Motusi technology has made my care for patient patients easier and it, it's more patient-centered. Um, but what really excites me is that PT needs innovation because our standard model of care, like we've talked about, kind of runs us into the ground rather than elevating us because, you know, we, we have so much so much demand for our our skills, but then we try to cram it into as little time as we we can. Um, So what do you see, you know, with your broad knowledge base, what do you see the next gen of smarter PTs, where do you see them taking the profession? Is it more of like a primary care setting, maybe more of a, a tech driven evaluation where we come in after getting movement, vital signs, you know, where do you see the field needing innovation?
2: Yeah. I see it. I mean you use the primary care model. I think that's uh, that's intriguing for us to head down that road for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, we're better trained to, to diagnose and treat acute musculoskeletal injuries than most physicians are, right? And I do I do primary care with physician groups where we go down and see patients with them and nine times out of ten the physicians like, I, I don't know, this isn't their heart, this isn't something significant. Can you please tell me what to do? Yeah. But I think what we're going to have to get a lot better at doing at physical therapy is to say, you actually don't need me. You just need to do this thing over here, and you're going to get, probably get better and reach out to me if you have questions. But we need to be able to stratify patients. This patient is probably low-touch cohort because of these factors, so they're going to get better without needing me. Gone are the days of even five years ago where the APTA pushed this, where the PT for life. Everybody needs physical therapy. You all need to be seen by a physical therapist. That'd be great if we have an army of PTs to see all these people, but darn it, we don't. There's a huge shortage of PTs right now, and it's only going to get worse. And so what we then have to do is to say, all right, well, who really doesn't need the high touch and still can get great care, but they don't need to come to the clinic twice a week to see me? Who are the people that can be handled in kind of this medium touch of maybe I call them or we do telehealth or maybe one visit every three or four weeks and they do a lot on their own? And then who are the high touch patients that need me? So I think we need to get in at the primary care and and help make those decisions. But then also on the other side of it is where do we use these high technologies? So I think we would all agree while the Matusi system is really amazing, every patient doesn't need it. And so identifying which of those patients are gonna receive the highest value for this modality and get in and get out and do that and get the good outcomes as fast as we can. So we're gonna have to be better thinkers probably less better doers or a team is going to have to help us out. It's just the economy. It's how it's going to work. But our minds have to be distributed through this whole process.
0: Ah, oh, that's, that's great. Um, what, are, what are some encouragements that you have for newer PTs? Like what are the most impactful skills we need to come out with? Kind of like you're saying smarter, work smarter, but not harder.
2: Yeah, I think one of the biggest ones, because this is the biggest burnout uh, cause for many of our PTs, uh, is electronic medical record. So uh, we get techno savvy young therapists. These folks have been on computers their entire life. And then we come in and mentor them and they have no clue how to efficiently use a computer in a course of visit or they see it as a negative thing. They're like, look, it's bad for care. So I'll just go ahead and do all my notes at the end of the day. So I don't have this computer between me and the patient. You're going to kill yourself when you do that. And so this is a lot of my work with, we do research with medical scribes. We do a lot of research with respect to EHR implementations and how do they um, facilitate quality care our providers need to be ninjas on a computer how do we use this amazing tool in front of us not just to be a repository for us to type our notes in but for us to gather information and share it with the patient for us to put information in and use what's called clinical decision support so the computer can tell us hey you've got these seven factors present research tells us if you do this you're probably going to get that outcome so maybe you want to do this the computer's smart enough to do this but We don't want we call it cookie cutter if you use a computer or you're fearful that the computer is going to be seen as a crutch for you research doesn't support that if you use it like a tool the patient will see it as a valuable tool if you use it like a crutch the patient will see it like a crutch and so they have to be great on the ehr i think that the second thing that the young therapists have to be able to do is keep perspective because the volume of patients is never level. You're going to have one day where you see 14 patients and one day where you see six. And we're going to see sort of this sort of thing. So the ability to say, whew, it's a busy day. It's a crazy busy day calling my people and let's get around it. And then it's a, it's a slower day. How do I do that? So be able to lift your head up and say, all right, where am I right now in the bigger picture versus getting lost in the hour that i'm struck at right now and i think that's where we see a lot of our pts not just young pts just busy pts get hung up is just so focused on the now and paralyzed by the now that they don't lift their head up and use all this amazing skill and brain power that they have because they're just paralyzed by the pressure pushed on in the moment
0: what classes do you teach remind me you said orthopedics and manual like it's kind of a mid-level course you're (laughs) saying
2: yeah, so in NIOT I teach their mid-level manual therapy courses, so they're 500, 600 level courses. And it's more clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and then manual intervention. At OHSU, I teach courses in organizational behavior. So how do we as an organization move goals together? Uh, how do we do implementation as an organization? And then I also teach qualitative research methods. So how do we get
0: good data from things like this, doing interviews and surveys? Yeah, that's awesome. And now you're on the quantitative side then with Motusi as well. So you kind of get to see you know, both sides of research. Is that? Is that
2: yeah, fun? I went into informatics wanting to be a data analyst. I mean, yeah. so I do that for therapeutic associates. A lot of my work is creating dashboards Um, So we do analytics in the back end. And then how do we visualize that data so it can be actionable? So we give the business leaders dashboards to make business decisions. We give our managers dashboards to make manager decisions. And we give our therapists dashboards to help them make decisions on quality and the things that they're going to be held accountable for. Because ultimately, you can't hold a person accountable to a number that you never share with them. And so the whole hallmark of informatics is to say, I'm going to give you a number. And as soon as you see that number, you're like, oh, there it is. I need to do this. And that's going to make me better at whatever I'm trying to do. So the, yeah. the number moves you to better action. That's what we try to do with our dashboards.
1: So Chris, we know, gotten to learn a lot about you, about professionally. Um, curious to know, this is the second question we're asking everybody that comes on the, on the show is that, uh what have you been learning lately? What have you been pondering lately? What are the books on your bedside table? You know, that type of, that type of side of you.
2: Yeah, so I'm out, I'm flying a lot now, so I get to read a lot more than I used to. And I'm not a fiction reader, so um, I kind of read business, business things that kind of pushed me forward. Um, uh, I also listen to podcasts when I'm working out. I'm a big Jocko Wilmick fan, which is he wrote the book um, Extreme Ownership, kind of extreme ownership. Yeah, this concept of how do you how do you own a process, both the positives and the negatives. But he's got a, a, a newer book than that one, this Leadership Strategies and Tactics. And so I just finished that one a couple of weeks ago, and I, I think that one's really good about all right. Well, if you want to do this thing, it's kind of a recipe book for if you're dealing with this thing. Here's some ways to to kind of work through, but. The, the two things that I've learned from that, one is that pick your head up. So this concept of detach yourself from the problem that you're at, lift your head up, look at the bigger picture, make a plan of attack, and then go back in and do it. I, I'm a busy executive, so I'm always down in the weeds of doing things. And I forget oftentimes what I just told you I need PTs to do, which is to pause, take a breath, and make sure you're still going in the right direction. And the second thing is this concept of distributive leadership. And I, this is what we really push our new PTs to do. And then I need to do a better job of. Some organizations are just very top-down hierarchical. Do this because I told you to, because I'm your executive, That that's not gonna work. Others are very free form. Hey, we're all this together, you're smart, do your own thing, and uh, we'll all come together in the end. That also won't work. So distributive leadership is being really clear on where are we headed? the general objectives of what's okay and not okay to do, but leave it loose for these really smart, engaged people to figure it out and then let those folks go ahead and do it. And when they get in the battle, it's a military term, when they get into battle, they can make decisions on their own because they know what the goal is. They know kind of the constraints that they live in, but you have a hamstrung them by telling them exactly what to do. So they have latitude to be smart and make those changes. It's the reason the U.S. military does as well as it does. And it's something that I think in organizations we need to do a better job of but it takes consistent um, training on here's the why of what we're doing. Here's where we're all going.
1: Love that. So the, the, the screen froze right when you said there's consistent. You need to, t- it takes consistent okay. something or other.
2: I yep. got you. Yeah. So there's a consistent why. So we get a consistent why message to the masses. Here's Here's where we're headed and here's why we're headed that way. So people buy in. People don't buy into a what people buy into a why. So here's where we're going, here's why it's important. Let's all lean in there.
0: That that really hits a nerve of the PT who wants to be autonomous, creative, kind of master their craft and be in charge of their their schedule. Of course, you know, we want to hit the metrics that they need for a successful practice, but I feel like the constraints of units, insurance, and what payers need is really, really hard. We have this brilliant skill set and we want to use it in a meaningful way. And, and one that's empowering to our patients as well. So it's, a, it's cool that you're in this executive role because that influence I think can be very, very powerful, especially being a, a physical therapist yourself.
2: Yeah, this is where mentorship is so important because I can only sit so much, but for me to come in and act more with you, not teach you and not constrain you by, you just need to think what I'm thinking, but I help you reason through a problem. It helps fix that paralysis by analysis because I'll say this is our biggest limitation with our, our newer PTs. We froze again. It's too many patients. It's too many uh, constraints on me. And I I have to do this because I think this is a restriction for me to come in and say, why is that a restriction? You kind of know, here's where you need to go. You don't have to do it that way. What's another way to do it? Okay. That didn't work. What's another way to do it? Okay. Why, why wouldn't you try it this way? I think giving them that encouragement to say, nudge into the unknown, see what's over there. Not just to say, well, I, I haven't ever done it that way. I've never seen someone do it. So I can't, that's where people get stuck. And then I feel just constrained and paralyzed, and that's just an unhealthy place to
0: live. So I think that's a really great takeaway for giving some PTs nuggets of wisdom. You know, we asked about PT in the next 10 years. One of my favorite questions is, you know, if there was a billboard on the busiest freeway that a lot of people would drive by, you know, what message would you want people to see?
2: Hmm. I I think a big one I push for folks is embrace change. Many of us resist change because we feel forced into change. But resist. But if you embrace change as an opportunity to reimagine something, to look in something new, and to think of a new way of doing it, get creative. Uh, so I, I think it it frees us up. If you say, "I know crap is going to hit me in life," and if I look at it as it was forced to change on me and it's a bad thing, well then that's going to be you're going to see negative, and you're probably not going to be empowered to make make positive change. But if you say, I know crap is going to come. at me," I frankly don't care. I'm going to take it on. I'm going to use that as an opportunity to morph. I'm going to get creative and get curious about what just happened and how can I make the best of it. And then nothing in life, even the really bad things can, can really get you to the point where you're paralyzed any longer. And if you embrace change and get creative, I think those are the two things that opens this way up.
0: Love that. Yeah, I have a personal question for you. Mindset and mentality seems really important to you. Were you a competitive athlete? Where where do you keep your, what do you do to you keep your mindset where it is?
2: Yeah, so I was a high school athlete. All, I played uh, football track, about everything in the world when I was younger and I was a high school football player and track athlete. And then I played football in college. So I think my athletic background pushed me. I'm I'm a Christian and I use my prayer life and that concept of keeping everything in perspective. Um, about 12 years ago, I was invited to become a, Reserve Deputy Sheriff with Washington It's It's a trial of fire and you never know what's coming at you. And all these guys just have amazing, like, let's just do it. Let's just go forward. I don't know what's going to happen. I could get shot at. I could sit and eat a donut all day long. I don't know what's coming today, but it's cool. And I got my frenzy is keep going and we just deal with it. Um, so doing that for nine years and working with amazing guys in the Sheriff's department, um, one humbled the heck out of me. I mean, I'm a doctorally trained PT and I can't work a radio. Uh, and these guys can just run circles around me with report writing and all of that. So, it, one, it makes me humble. But two, it just it, something's going to happen, and you can deal with it. You know, you have a training. Lean on your training. Lean on your stick to itiveness. So, I think my my spiritual life, my background as an athlete, and then being humbled as a cop shaped me where I am.
0: That's really cool. Thanks for sharing. I just am curious about how people develop a positive affect, you know, grit, resilience. And I I love working with people or athletes for a lot of those reasons. Um, But, you know, being able to move forward when things don't always go our way is, I think it's a really powerful, um, powerful mindset to have. So thank you so much, Chris, for sharing with us today. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: You've been listening to the Force Matters podcast. We appreciate you tuning in and really want to hear from you.
0: If you have questions you'd like to hear answered on the podcast, you can find us at Motusi.com on our blog page or DM us on Instagram at Motusi Corp. See you next time. And until then, keep moving.